Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we leverage science and technology to protect endangered species and ecosystems around the world. So welcome to Conservation Conversations with me, Sean O'Brien, I'm the President and CEO of NatureServe. And I'm really happy this month to be here with Dr. Murphy Westwood, who is the Vice President of Science and Conservation at the Morton Arboretum, which is really probably one of the most important arboretums on the planet. Um, so we're super excited to have you here to talk about um, all sorts of things related to the important role that arboreta play in the world and some of the really cool, very specific things that um, you all are doing at, at Morton and uh, with your colleagues. So Murphy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here. Great. So you've done work all over the world um, over the years with your colleagues from um, Botanic Gardens and from Arboretums. So let's just quickly help people understand what's a Botanic Garden and what's an Arboretum. So botanic gardens and arboreta are sort of sisters or cousins in the um, in this in the I guess sort of cultural environmental institution sort of space. So um, public gardens, botanic gardens, are places that display plants of usually known origin. So they're different than just a park, right? Because the plants that we have growing there, we've identified. Um, usually there's an, a level of interpretation. So we're engaging with our visitors to try to connect plants and people. Um, there's often a conservation component. In fact, increasingly, there is a big conservation component in public gardens and arboreta. So, you know, historically, both were, um, were sort of the, the institutions that catered more to um, the wealthy or the elite. They were sort of pleasure gardens. These days, almost all uh, botanic gardens and arboreta have evolved so that they have some level of biodiversity conservation at the core of what they do because of how important the sort of twin challenges of uh, the biodiversity crisis um, and climate change that we have on our hands. So uh, public gardens and arboreta have really evolved in that way. An arboretum is basically a public garden that has a focus on trees and woody plants. And um, I think that's sort of, um, you know, one of the differences. So pretty, so most public, most arboreta are a type of public garden. Um, they, that sort of Venn diagram is almost completely overlapping, but not all botanic gardens are arboreta. So you might have a, like a cactus garden or an orchid focused botanic garden that really doesn't have any trees. And then I don't think you would call that one an arboretum. Interesting. So, and you also, I think, told me before that, um, Arboreta have been around for a really long time. Like as long as humans have been gathering, we have set up these sort of public parks. Exactly. And humans are inherently collectors. Like we love, we love to, to gather. Um, we love to gather and hoard and collect. And we love to, you know, we love novelty. We love beauty. We are animal instinct, you know, at our core for that. And I think Arboreta can be that, you know, they, they can gather trees and woody plants from around the world so that you can sort of see them all in one place and learn about the diversity of species, um, you know, different habitat types. So a good arboretum will have, will engage you in many different ways about the joys and the wonder of trees and woody plants. 
And the joys and wonders is a really important part because as we know, if you don't know what something is, you won't know that you need to protect it or that you can love it. And so having access to these arboreta and botanic gardens so that people can see what's out there and what the biodiversity is. And now to have these organizations have this conservation mission, it's so important and so wonderful. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things that you just brought up about knowing what something is and sort of being able to identify it, it was only in sort of the last, I guess, five years that we really had a solid understanding of how many tree species there are in the world. We did not know that before like 2017. That was like the first global effort to like understand how many trees there were in the world. So how many is it? So it is a constantly evolving and like shifting number because new things are always being discovered and described and molecular studies can help us figure out that two things that maybe looked differently are exactly the same thing. They just sort of, you know, express differently in a different environment. But the current sort of running tally is about 58,500 species of tree in the world. 58,500. So I'm gonna, we're gonna hone in on the United States here in a minute, but first we need to know what is a tree. So 58, I know, right? There's 58,500 species, but if we change the definition a little bit, it might be, it might move some. So what's the, what's sort of the accepted definition of what a tree is? So that's really difficult. You're probably (laughs) thinking, this lady needs a new job if she doesn't know what a tree is and she works in an arboretum. So thanks for calling me out. It's actually really tricky, right? So a tree is not a biologically defined entity like a leaf or a fruit is. Um, So trees are kind of human constructs in a way. So we have this kind of picture in our heads. When you say tree, what do you picture? you know, an oak tree. Sure. Like, yes, solidly, that's a tree. No debate. Everyone would say that's definitely a tree. A conifer, like a spruce. Yeah, that's a tree, right? Tall, woody thing, much higher than we are. That's definitely a tree. But then you get into the sort of weird weeds of the trees, which is, you know, what if something is kind of a tall shrub? It's multi-stemmed. It's maybe only 10 or 15 feet tall. Is that a tree? Something like a witch hazel or a viburnum, maybe. Um, What about a palm tree? So they definitely look like trees, but they're monocots. So they don't actually produce technically what we would call wood. So they're woody, but they're not really producing wood. So, you know, I would say that's still a tree, but you might get really a sort of botanical purist to say, no, that's not a tree because it's not producing proper wood. What about a Joshua tree or even a really tall cactus, like a saguaro cactus? Is that a tree? It's sort of tall and like kind of at the base, they can get quite woody feeling. So anyway, there's like a huge amount of debate about this. And you can find different checklists and um, sort of databases of trees, and they will have wildly different numbers. So this was actually a big challenge for a project that, you know, we that we've just that we've just finished looking at trees And the definition that we essentially went with was um, to align with this bigger global effort. So I told you that we just sort of only just discovered how many trees there really are in the world. That was um, the product of of a big initiative called the Global Tree Assessment that is um, being run by Botanic Gardens Conservation International, which is an NGO based out of um, the UK. 
but it's part of this sort of huge international partnership effort with lots of tree experts from around the world, botanic gardens, forestry agencies, conservation NGOs, trying to get a handle on what is the state of the world's trees. And so we, so through this global tree assessment effort, we had to agree what is a tree. And so the definition for that is basically a woody plant that is at least two meters tall, so taller than six feet, that usually has a single stem or, um, you know, if it is multi, if it's multi-stemmed, it has a, a single stem that's about 10 centimeters at, um, in diameter at breast height. So that's roughly how we're defining a tree. And so in that definition, we are including things like palms and mm -hmm. even some of the woodier monocots that, you know, grow to look like trees. So tree that was fern? our definition. How about a tree fern? We did not include tree ferns, which okay. is a great question. Um, but that's sort of one of the exceptions of that original definition. If you want, I'll throw them in and we can assess those too. And <laughs> we'll expand the definition even more. But that's a great question. Tree ferns are not in. As cool as tree ferns are, I think definition. they deserve some attention, but they may not be appropriate in this, in this setting. Um, but you mentioned, so we did the... We figured out how many species there are in the world and did the global tree assessment. And one of the things that's really exciting right now is that the assessment of U.S. trees is hot news right now. And so we want to talk about the, the U.S. tree assessment and how many species of trees there are in the United States, shall we say, which is probably a, a much smaller number than 58,500. Um, so tell me, tell me. You you are a key player in this assessment of U.S. trees. Tell me a little bit about this. So, yeah, when this global tree assessment initiative kicked off, which is around 2015, um, the Morton Arboretum and several other botanic garden and arboretum partners in the U.S., um, as well as NatureServe, you, um, we were essentially all hanging out together, chatting and saying, I wonder what the picture looks like for U.S. trees for this global tree assessment initiative that's kicking off. And so um, we looked at, so the Morton Arboretum, we've been doing a lot of red listing. So the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species is a, a global platform for conducting threat assessments or conservation assessments, um, kind of an interchangeable term and uh, essentially trying to understand the risk of extinction for a set of species. And we had been doing red list assessments for the world's oak species, oak trees. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also as part of this global tree assessment. And so then we said, well, I wonder what it looks like for U.S. trees. And in fact, despite the fact that the United States has a lot of resources, we're pretty well-known flora, um, there were only about 250 tree species from the U.S., um, on the IUCN red list as of about 2017. We knew we had more tree species than that. So sure, yeah. they just hadn't really been looked at for the red list. Um, and so we thought, well, that is bad, right? We want to make sure that our U.S. trees, our tree flora, our natural heritage is included in this global effort and that we're contributing to these global conservation goals. So NatureServe is actually a critical partner in this effort because NatureServe also has a really rich database of biodiversity information and threat assessments through its NatureServe Explorer and its NatureServe Conservation Status Assessments. And NatureServe is actually a lot more well 
um, populated essentially for tree information. Although a lot of the tree assessments for NatureServe were out of date in 2017. So they were more than 10 years old. And that's sort of the like benchmark for wanting to have a current assessment. So NatureServe went in on this along with us and several other um, botanic garden partners, the U.S. Forest Service, U.S. Botanic Garden. And we um, said, well, let's do it. Let's make sure that we are keeping the NatureServe assessments up to date. And let's for sure get the red list assessments done because we can't compare at a global scale unless we get these trees in there. So that's essentially how we got started. Um, and we figured out that we needed to create that checklist all over again, using that definition that I described to you, because again, we had checklists like the U S forest service maintains a checklist, but it had a different definition of a tree and included different woody plants. So we kind of had to sort of scan through these various different databases to figure out what we had. And so we also constrained our study to the contiguous United States, the 48 States, Hawaii has a very robust conservation community there and their own specialist group focused on plants and trees in Hawaii. Puerto Rico also um, kind of has its own initiative going. So we focused on the lower 48. And in that catchment area, using that definition of a tree that I described, we have 881 tree species. And again, about 250 of those are on the red list. But when we started in 2017, and now we're up to about 96, over 96% of our trees are now on the red list. So we did like over 560 red assessments or when you say on the red list, it, it means they've been assessed. It doesn't mean that they're actually threatened. That's right. And that's a really good distinction. Yeah. I think sometimes those can sort of feel interchangeable. If something's on the, if it's red listed, that means it's threatened. And that's not true. That's a really good point. You can be least concerned or not, you know, not threatened with extinction on the red list, but we wanted that baseline information for everything. So 890 tree species native to the contiguous United States and something like 15% or so are considered imperiled in some way. Yeah, so we looked at both the red list and the nature serve assessments and did sort of a pretty, we did like a, a kind of whole synthesis across the, the lower 48, sort of the continental US and said, what does that look like? And um, according to the red list procedure and methodology, it's about 11% are threatened with extinction, just under 100 species. And through the nature serve methodology, it's about 15%. So 10 to 15%, 11 to 15%, at a minimum, are threatened with extinction in the U.S. And by threatened with extinction, that's a pretty high level of risk. Um, there's another category of trees that will be in some sort of vulnerable category as well, correct? Yeah, there's sort of that near threatened or like, you know, oh, we're keeping our eyes on these trees. We're a little bit worried. And, you know, from a conservation perspective, that that sort of band of species where you're not sort of critically endangered yet, where there's like 10 left in the world, um, but, you know, you're also not super widespread, that sort of band of species where it's like, we've got our eyes on you, we're concerned, it's clear that there are some issues. That's a really important niche to be operating in, in the conservation world, because those groups of species are probably still, they probably still have a lot of individuals to the to the point where they're not at this like huge population bottleneck yet. So that's where conservation action can really have a strong impact and where we as a conservation community need to continue to act so that we don't 
knock these things into that really threatened zone and we can actually take some action and make sure these still are playing a really important role in the fabric of the ecosystem and the community in which they live. Right. And so I have two follow-ups. One is if someone wants to see the U.S. tree assessment, where should they go to do that? So one place they can go is to the IUCN Red List website or the NatureServe Explorer website, and they can look at for their favorite species and actually find the assessment that says, you know, white oak, you know, not threatened, least concern or whatever. So that'll tell you sort of a species by species level snapshot for the tree for your tree of interest. The whole sort of synthesis where we looked at the continental United States and said, what does the picture look like for trees? That is in a uh, hot off the press uh, paper that has just come out in the journal Plants, People, Planet. And it will become a part of a special issue that that journal is running that looks at the global tree assessment and is looking at publications of sort of tree focused groups from around the world. I think they'll have five or 10 papers ultimately in that journal, all looking at the state of trees in different regions or countries around the world. And you, we are contributing to that on behalf of the United States. That's so cool. I'm, I'm, the little known piece of information is that I did my dissertation on um, trees in the rainforest of Panama. And uh, so I'm a bit of a tree nerd. Um, and so this is super fun to talk about for me. Uh, you said something before, though, that's my other follow up was, uh, you know, it's not one of like just 10 left in the world. Mm. But we actually have a more dramatic story even than that to talk about, because you all and NatureServe were involved in another project that found the last single individual of a species of tree. So tell us a little bit about Quercus tardifolia. Yeah, so, you know, going to that other extreme, um, what is arguably now the rarest tree in the United States is this Quercus tardifolia, which was originally described in the 1930s. It's an oak tree native to the uh, southwestern um, sort of part of Texas near Big Bend, in Big Bend National Park. That's where it was originally described. And it's probably never been a very abundant tree. And it was rare enough that we kind of had just a sort of vague understanding of what it really was. It's only ever been described from sort of a handful of trees or like someone found a cluster of trees. Those were the reports that we sort of have in our records. Anyway, the last known tree was dead for sure by 2011, the last time we went looking for it. And by we, I mean sort of collectively the Botanic Garden community and the conservation practitioners in Texas. So as part of this this global tree assessment, as part of the work we were doing with oaks, we were looking at oaks in the U.S. and did a conservation gap analysis of native U.S. oaks that looked like real deep into sort of what is the state of oaks looking like in the U.S. And what we identified there is that this little bit of southwest Texas where Big Bend National Park is, is a kind of weird hotspot for oak diversity in the U.S. And it has three or four species that are either extremely threatened, like critically endangered or endangered, or they're very poorly known, what we'd call say data deficient um, in terms of like the a status assessment, because you just don't have enough information to know whether, whether it's real, whether it's threatened or not. So Quercus tardifolia is one of three or four species in Southwest Texas. And so we partnered um, again with some other, with a, you know, it's actually a big coalition of botanic gardens and oak experts from around the country. The U.S. Forest Service, the National Park Service right there, U.S. Botanic Garden was funding this particular expedition that we went on in this sort of focus in southwest Texas. 
to um, to kind of better expand our knowledge of trees there because it, it was identified as like sort of the top priority from this gap analysis. So if we were to invest resources in any sort of part of the country to really make sure that we're having an impact on oaks, this was a, a kind of cluster or a hotspot of where we wanted to focus. So we went on this expedition down to Big Bend National Park and we've actually been working on this for three or four years now with some with partners um, you know across the country and the last expedition that went down there just a couple of months ago we discovered a single tree of Quercus tardifolia so, so amazing it's one so tragic but so amazing <laughs> yeah so I mean we're excited though this is like I see this as hope right you know we thought we lost it um, you know, I was talking with Wes Snap, your chief botanist, and he said, you know, nature rarely hands us a second chance. Um, and we got it with this tree and we're not going to miss it. So we already have plans afoot to go back to mm -hmm. search for more. We've taken DNA samples from that tree so that we can try to sequence it and compare it with other tree species in the area and really figure out, is this really a species or is it just sort of a strange hybrid between a couple of the other rare species there? We hope we're going to be running that molecular analysis in our lab here. Um, and we're going to go back and try to protect it. We're going to try to either collect acorns. It doesn't look like it's fruiting. It's actually in pretty bad shape. It has a fungal infection and it's clearly mm. been scarred by wildfires. So we you know, want to propagate it if we can, either vegetative propagation or keep an eye on it to see if it's maybe going to mast next year and produce more acorns. But U.S. Botanic Garden continues to support this project, and we continue to work on it with NatureServe and with, um, you know, San Antonio Botanic Garden and UC Davis Arboretum and a bunch of other um, botanic gardens from across the country, as well as Bartlett Tree Experts and the National Park Service. So it's sort of this multi-sector collaborative effort, which is really exciting. It's super exciting, and it's so great to see people so excited across such a broad range about a tree, right? One oak tree, and everybody's used to oak trees. Of course, they're all different. Um, but this story has been covered by the New Republic, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, by the Hill. I mean, this this story of sort of coming back, right? Second chance, as Wes said, um, has really resonated. And I think that's really great. And like you said, it's a hopeful story that we can talk about when it comes to conservation of biodiversity, that you know maybe this can happen in other places with other species. Um, we do know that you know captive breeding of things like Wyoming toad or other uh, butterflies and things has been able to recover uh, wild populations. And so you mentioned the uh, acorns from this tree and it doesn't seem to be fruiting this year. Um, but acorns, oak trees are actually kind of difficult because the acorns, you can't just like hang on to them for a long time. So, and this may be a little bit technical, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in what makes acorns different from other seeds. Yeah, so, you know, we just can't do things the easy way, right? So we are, you know, one of the reasons that the Morton Arboretum is very interested in oaks and oak conservation, you know, first of all, they're probably arguably the most important group of trees in the country. It's the most species in the country for any tree group. It's the most biomass. Um, you know, they're they're keystone species in the in the habitats in which they live. But another reason why we're quite focused on them is that acorns can't be seed banked through conventional seed bank methods. So usually, the the concept of a seed bank is it's sort of our insurance policy against extinction. So you go out, and you collect a bunch of seeds. 
you dehydrate them and you chill them really cold and you basically stick them in a walk-in freezer. That's what a seed bank is. Most seeds do pretty well there and you can preserve them there for decades or even centuries and they will re-germinate a healthy plant if you were to make a withdrawal from that bank. Which is amazing, by the which way. Is, which is amazing, yeah, right? That like aren't They're incredible. Clever. Yeah. I know. So, but sadly, oaks don't do that. So they're what we call an exceptional species, meaning that they're sort of, you need to take exceptional measures and they do not, you know, so they don't sort of follow these, these usual rules. So acorns don't survive those conditions. If you, if you take it out and you try to plant it, it it's dead. The embryo dies. So this is one of the reasons why botanic garden collections and arboreta are so important to oak conservation, because we can grow these plants in essentially a living gene bank in our living collections. We can grow oaks, we can propagate them, we can, you know, breed them so that we can generate more material ultimately for reintroducing into the wild, um, either in safer, better, you know, similar lo locations, historic locations in Big Bend, but potentially also through sort of assisted migration. What would the natural sort of course of movement of that species be taking into account climate change? Right. And botanic gardens are kind of natural common garden studies, right? We can test these species out in different settings and under different climate conditions and say, oh, actually this thing's thriving here. You know, this is a, this is maybe a climate analog we should be looking for in the wild or elsewhere. So the Arboretum, Morton Arboretum leads um, another sort of network called the Global Conservation Consortium for Oak, the GCCO. And it's one of these, um, these programs or these networks that we're looking to to really sort of be better than the sum of our parts, right? We know that no one garden or arboretum should or like can or should conserve all of the genetic diversity of one species. So we're gonna partner with a bunch of gardens and create these sort of coordinated living collections or meta collections, we call it, and, and try to grow these rare oaks and rare tree species. There are other special consortia focused on other taxonomic groups too. But that's, you know, one of the goals that we're trying to do is, is grow these things in, in living collections so that we can study them, so that we can propagate them, so that we can understand, you know, if there are pest and disease issues, how they might react to different climates in the future, and ultimately sort of inspire and engage our visitors as well, because we get over a million visitors a year at the Morton Arboretum, and it's great to be able to share this message of conservation and hope. Yeah, that's so great. And it's so interesting about the oak trees. It's so Fascinating um, and unfortunately challenging in this specific situation. Yeah. Um, and speaking of specifics, um, do you have a specific tree species that you would consider to be your favorite? Oh, that's such a hard question. Forgetting <laughs> that question all the time, you'd think I'd have like a regular answer, but it does change. So I will say I'm fickle in that way that I sort of, I fluctuate about um, sometimes it's a, it's a different species in the fall than it is in the spring. Sure. Right now I'm really loving just our, our standard old state tree of Illinois. I'm outside of Chicago is the white oak. And it just is a really lovely summer tree. The shape of the leaf and the color of green that it is right now is just, it sort of is like if you were to picture a leaf or picture a tree, that is the tree that would be like, you know, your cartoon tree is yeah. I think, the white oak. And I'm just really enjoying them 
right now. So I think today my favorite tree is a white oak, but who knows what tomorrow may hold. <laughs> it's it's a little bit unfair. It's like asking what, you know, which is your favorite child, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> I have, and I have 58,500 favorite children. Exactly. So. exactly. Well, so you've been talking a lot about conservation and you're obviously really passionate about the work that you do. And I'm curious, why did you choose to go into this field? I'm, I'm sure at some point in your life, you said to someone, you know, oh, I'm going to study, I'm going to become a doctor of trees. And people were like, are you kidding? Um, so w- what was the inspiration and why, why, why do you care so much about this? So um, believe it or not, this isn't like I was five years old and I knew I wanted to do this. Like I went off to college um, to be an English major. So see how, you know, how that turned out after about two years of being at college and having taken no English classes, my academic advisor said, maybe you should go into environmental science because that's all that you've been taking and you haven't taken any English classes. So it was sort of a meandering, you know, route, but it sort of, it, it convened ever more and more on environment and plants and conservation. So I've had, you know, experiences in environmental policy and in sort of ag biotech and in genetics and it's always sort of been around a focus, you know, like it sort of has meandered around the focus of plants and conservation and sort of understanding plants and plants to plant diversity. But I was always most at like at joy when I was in a botanic garden. So I did my graduate degrees in the UK and I studied at Cambridge and one and did some of my research actually on the plants in the Cambridge Botanic Garden, which is where Charles Darwin came up with his and, you know, honed his theory of evolution through natural selection. So kind of inspiring to kind of know that you're walking around among the trees that he literally walked through in the department that he was in and very exciting and at the Royal Botanic Garden at Kew, I did some work there, which is probably one of the best known, you know, gardens in the world. Mm-hmm. So I've I've always been in this sort of public garden space and really um, loved the aspect of the visitors and the people that you can impact. So, you know, at, at universities and academia, you have this kind of pursuit of knowledge. We have those same level caliber molecular labs and research facilities in public gardens. And we also engage over 500 million visitors a year across the world's roughly 3,000 botanic gardens. So think about the impact that can have on connecting plants to people through your visitors. So it's that's sort of been like where I found my sweet spot to be was the kind of fundamental pursuit of knowledge and the, you know, focus on, on plants and plant evolution and conserving that biodiversity, but also that kind of outreach and education and engagement component. That's, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a great story, but it's also amazing to think about 500 million people having their lives affected by visiting these public gardens. It's so great. And it's so important. As we talked about, you have to know things to love them, to want to protect them. Um, yeah. So that is really cool. Um, I'm, I've really enjoyed this conversation um, as, as a tree nerd and all that. Um so well, and thank you so much to NatureServe oh. for your partnership in these different initiatives too. I mean, I think it's just been a really great collaboration and I, you know, I really see a lot of opportunity in these kind of cross 
sector and, you know, multidisciplinary partnerships where you have conservation organizations and public gardens and universities and government agencies and national parks, all of that. We need all these people, right? We need all these different um, sort of expertise hubs to, to get involved. Yeah, I completely agree. And the collaboration is so important because the resources are limited financially, but also, as we know from Corcus Tartifolia, the natural resources are also limited and we need to make sure that we're doing the best thing by them. And so the, the collaborations bring together all these expertise and all of this financial resources to be able to actually do the really important work of slowing ex the rate of extinction on the planet. So it, you're right, the, the collaboration and the work that we're all doing is really awesome to see and uh, awesome to hear about and to hear you Dr. Murphy Westwood talk about it in such an articulate and amazing way. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to our organizations collaborating more in the future. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was our pleasure for sure. Thank you.